Trial Brief with your host, David Otto. This summer, in mid-July, there was a headline that caught my eye, and that was the Trump administration carries out the first federal execution since 2003. And after two decades without any federal executions, the Justice Department reversed course this past July by carrying out three death sentences in four days. Now, the department is planning an equally busy schedule of executions during the Trump administration's final days before a president who staunchly backs capital punishment is succeeded by one who opposes it. The Justice Department is pushing to carry out executions during the run-up to President-elect Joe Biden's inauguration including scheduling three executions during the week before Joe Biden takes office. Just today, a group of nearly 100 current and former elected prosecutors, attorneys general, and law enforcement leaders, as well as former United States attorneys and Department of Justice officials, wrote in opposition to the application of the death penalty and in support of clemency, for those individuals scheduled for federal execution in the coming months. Over the Thanksgiving weekend, I was catching up on some reading, and I found an article in The Intercept, an article entitled, Trump Presses Forward with Execution of Man Convicted by All-White Jury. And it was an article about a man named Orlando Hall, who was among the first to be sentenced under the 1994 crime bill, and he's going to be the eighth person executed on federal death row this year. And the article was written by an award-winning investigative journalist, Liliana Segura. And if you don't know who Liliana Segura is, I suggest you you check out The Intercept and, and read her work. She covers the U.S. criminal justice system with a focus on harsh sentencing, the death penalty, and wrongful convictions. She was previously an associate editor at The Nation magazine where she edited a number of award-winning stories and earned a 2014 Media for a Just Society Award for her writing on prison profiteering. While at The Intercept, Liliana has received the Texas Gavel Award in 2016 and the 2017 Innocence Network Journalism Award for her investigations into convictions in Arizona and Ohio. I'm really lucky to have Liliana Segura with us today. Uh, Welcome to the trial brief, Liliana. Thanks so much for having me. Yeah, it's a real pleasure. Are you, um, well, first of all, how, how are you doing with all this, with COVID? <laughs> I mean, you know, we're, we're navigating all uncharted waters here. And how have you been doing with that? Thanks for asking. I, I think I feel similarly to a lot of people, which is that every day feels like a week. I've lost all sense of time. And I think, you know, the sort of already surreal moment we're in has been made all that much more surreal by my focus, my ongoing focus, really, since July and, and long before that on these on these federal executions, there's a sense that they're relentless and never ending, but also they're they're being carried out amid this pandemic and in a way that somehow hasn't really caught the attention of the American public in a kind of sustained sort of way. And so sometimes it feels like I'm screaming into the void and that can be a little bit exhausting. So I really appreciate you having me on to talk about it. Sure. Are you from New York originally? 
I lived in New York. I went to college in New York and I lived in New York for about 16 years before I moved to Nashville, Tennessee. So I'm in Nashville. I've been here for, for about five and a half years, but still have my New York number, still go back to New York uh, as often as I can. It's, it, it still very much feels like home. Good. What sparked your interest in covering these justice issues? It sort of started with the death penalty in a, in a way. Uh, I was actually in college up at Barnard in 2001. I was there when September 11th happened. And at the time, I, I knew that I wanted to be a writer. I, I had sort of dreams of being a journalist, but I didn't really have an, an issue or series of issues that, that I felt very passionate about necessarily. And in the wake of 9-11 on campus, uh, one of the sort of formative events for me when it came to this topic was seeing Sister Helen Prejean come to speak to students on campus in the sort of days and weeks following 9-11. And I think if you've heard her speak, you know that she, she is a very powerful speaker in general. But the message that she delivered on that day was this incredibly life-affirming. <laughs> I don't know. I, I, I don't know if I would call it a call to action or, or what, but it, it was kind of what I needed to hear in this moment of, of trauma and confusion and bewilderment and fear, frankly, um, after this, this cataclysmic event. It, it got me interested in, in the group that had helped to co-sponsor this event. And there was a group of anti-death penalty activists on campus who, who kind of I started to get to know, and and they taught me a lot about the death penalty. Interestingly, you know, New York at the time technically had a, a, the death penalty on the books, but it wasn't active uh, in any you know meaningful way. Um, and and so at the time, this was a lot of the focus among activists. I was getting to know they were um, involved with activists in in Illinois, in Chicago, and I learned a bit about the history of um, the death penalty in Illinois, and specifically the legacy of police violence and police torture of predominantly African-American men on the south side of Chicago under a police commander named John Burge. And the reason that story, that history is important is that a number of these men who were basically tortured in all kinds of ways in these precincts in Chicago, a number of them gave uh, false confessions and a number of them ended up on death row. And this, this was a very, it was an open secret for years, but a lot of the activists that I was getting to know when I was starting to discover this issue in college were, were organizing with folks on the ground in Chicago. And through them, I got to know some of the family members who had been directly impacted by this system. I got to know one of the first exonerees I ever met, the first man exonerated in Illinois from death row. And it was sort of a radicalizing moment for me. I, I, I had never really, I didn't grow up um, with proximity to the criminal justice system. I didn't have a loved one in prison, let alone on death row. Um, but there was something really disturbing to me about the fact that I, I had somehow gone this long in life and didn't know this history myself and, and found it to be scandalous and, and wanted to know more and wanted to sort of eventually uh, found a way to, to be able to tell those stories myself. So it really did. The death penalty was one of my sort of early issues before I even was a professional journalist. Wow. Over these years, it seemed to be, again, I, I, don't, I don't know the stats, I, I don't know much detail, but it seems, you know, from being in the legal profession, there's been a decrease in death sentences that have been handed down. There's been a decrease in the number of executions. I think groups like the Innocence Project, you know, that movement, which I'm intimately familiar with since I, I do handle wrongful conviction cases, and, and other groups have done just such an incredible job, I think, of, of accomplishing that. But then we have these headlines. We see now new executions. We also see this normalizing of, you know, life without parole. That's, that's cool, too. 
you know, that that's, that's a fine option as well. So what have you seen? Is that, is that accurate? Is that an accurate portrayal of the last decade or so? Yeah. You know, one of the things that's so strange about this moment is that the federal government, not only is the federal government the only jurisdiction carrying out executions at the moment during this pandemic. I mean, there've been two others, um, Texas and Missouri each carried out one, but, but the federal government's execution spree really flies in the face of this trend that you're, you're describing, which is absolutely accurate. Year after year, we see uh, not only fewer executions, but fewer capital prosecutions, fewer death sentences, period, handed down. And that's for, I think, a lot of reasons. One, um, undoubtedly, is is the rise of life without parole. Um, and that's kind of a whole other problem in my mind. I think it's my personal opinion that the, the anti-death penalty movement largely made a, a strategic mistake in, in, in adopting life without parole as the kind of natural default moral alternative to, to the death penalty. I think that only because it's, it's kind of helped normalize what, what I consider to be another kind of form of permanent sentencing that's, that's problematic in many ways, but no, no question it's had a, an impact in, in sort of moving, moving things forward in terms of death penalty abolition and certainly in terms of um, fewer death sentences being handed out. Uh, so there's that. There's also the fact that, you know, as I learn over and over again when I write about these older cases from the 80s and the 90s, death penalty representation has gotten so much better. A lot of uh, people who were sent to death row, especially in the in the sort of early 90s, really suffered from ineffective assistance of counsel. And, and you see those mistakes come up again and again, especially when it comes to mitigation investigations or the lack of mitigation investigations in, in some of these cases. Um, so, so better lawyering is absolutely having a huge impact on, on the reduced number of, of, of new death sentences. But, and yet, you know, sort of counter to these trends of fewer executions and fewer new death sentences, you see these kinds of moments where, you know, the Trump administration is pushing through all of these federal executions. In my adopted state of Tennessee right now, you know, we restarted executions a few years ago and have executed now, not only, God, I, I've lost count actually, but Several carried out several executions in the past couple of years, but notably, I think of the of the last six, five of them have actually been carried out using the electric chair, which I think a lot of Americans don't understand that the electric chair is still being used in this country. Um, and we can talk more about that and these kind of alternate methods. But but so so despite this kind of broader trend that's nationwide and that's, that that is sort of accompanied by a decreasing popularity of, of the death penalty in terms of public opinion, you do see states like Tennessee or a jurisdiction like the federal government embarking on these, these, these killing sprees. Uh, and, and it's really kind of, yeah, it's kind of a bizarre moment in that sense. Let's talk about Orlando Hall. Why don't you tell us about how you first became involved with the Orlando Hall case? Basically what I've been doing since I knew that these executions were coming down the pike, I, I've, I've just tried to follow them and write about the cases that clearly that have elements worth exploring and unpacking. And, 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 you know, there've been too many cases, too many executions to write about each individual case. But I knew from the moment they started setting dates for uh, black defendants for, you know, black men who are on death row that not only were, were we going to see a lot more um, uh, uh, black men coming up for execution, but race is going to be at the heart of these cases in one way or another. Um, it, it's just inevitable. And so Orlando Hall's case, first of all, it's important to acknowledge, I mean, the, the, the horrific nature of this crime. You know, I think I think one of the challenges of writing uh, uh, these stories is that people are very easily turned off from a, an article that not only involves like a really, it, where, where the, the guilt of the, of the person is not in doubt uh, and where the crime itself was just 
you know, truly sort of uh, what one considers to be the worst of the worst. You know, this was a case involving a 16-year-old girl who was abducted from her apartment uh, where she lived with her sister, repeatedly raped while she was being held captive and then buried alive, held for, I believe, a week or, or over a week. And Orlando Hall was one of a group of, of young black men who was involved in this in this horrible crime. So so I got to, I first sort of heard about his case just because by virtue of the fact that his date was set um, and he was next up for execution after the um, the killing of Christopher Vialva. Christopher Vialva was the first black man to come up for execution in this, in this round of um, executions under Trump. I, I had a little bit of time. I guess Christopher Vialba was killed in September. There were no executions scheduled for October, and, and, and Orlando Hall's execution was scheduled for November 19th. So between those two, I had a little bit of time, and I decided to start digging into um, Orlando Hall's case. Um, and one of the primary reasons was because of what ends up in, in the headline in my piece, which is that this was a black man who, had tr- who, who was tried and sentenced to death by a white jury, an all-white jury, which... You know, in 2020, <laughs> that that is still it's very startling to come across that. Um, even even when I've written a lot of stories in which there was unresolved questions of racial bias, where the race dynamics mirrored these kinds of old sort of tropes, frankly, uh, that, that we've come to see in, in, in so much of, of death penalty history in this country. So so that really caught my attention. Um, but but it's a challenge with these federal cases. I've I've, I've noticed depending on on the case and the judge and and the filings. Um, uh, you know, I, I pull stuff up on Pacer all the time. I have the luxury of, of being able to do that through my work, and and a lot of the items in this case were sealed. I actually had a very hard time getting getting uh, documents off of Pacer, and I'm the kind of journalist who I, I want to read everything. I want the police reports, I want the pretrial hearings, I want you know uh, jury selection, I want uh, trial transcripts, and I really didn't have access to that stuff at all. But what I did have access to were some of the post conviction filings and the um, the the exhibits. Uh, that that came up through after the fact, and um, it was really there where you where you see the story of, of some of the things that went wrong in Orlando Hall's case when it came to his representation. So what I write about in the story largely is first acknowledging that you know this crime was really horrific. Um, the victim was very sympathetic. Obviously, the family suffered tremendously in that part of the story, the story of the crime and all its grisly detail, and the story of the victims. Uh, that's been told in podcasts and true crime documentaries and an episode of the FBI files. Um, and I didn't feel the need necessarily to, to, to retell all of that. But what I did think was important was to, to tell the story of some of the things that went wrong. And in Orlando Hall's case, I wanted to better understand how it was that he came to be uh, tried by an all-white jury. Part of it had to do with the prosecutors who were handling his case. Um, one of them, it would turn out, had come out of the Dallas County DA's office, a guy named Paul Macaluso, uh, who it would turn out uh, was kind of a repeat offender when it came to uh, using peremptory strikes to to exclude black jurors from these trials. Um, this issue, of course, was litigated going back right. decades. That's, and That's the Batson v. Kentucky, and the prosecutor uh, either side actually cannot eliminate jurors just on the basis of their race. Exactly, exactly. So, so that's how it's supposed to work, right? And, and one of the interesting things about that is that at the time that Batson was handed down, um, there was a, a, a defendant named Thomas Miller L. who was sentenced to death right around that same time. And Paul Macaluso was one of the prosecutors in his case. And I believe in his case, it was like, 
an almost all white jury. I think there might have been one black juror. And the Miller L case, as you might know, when I ended up getting litigated all the way up to the Supreme Court, uh, essentially, because the Fifth Circuit refused to apply Batson in this case. And, and I may be getting, I, I mean, there's it's actually, Miller L is a little confusing because there's technically two. Essentially, the Supreme Court told the Fifth Circuit it had to address the Batson claims in this case. And then the case ended up getting back up to the Supreme Court because the Fifth Circuit stubbornly refused, basically, to 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 provide any meaningful hearing um, on these on these issues. And so, um, this problem of of the Fifth Circuit and Batson claims, I mean, continues to come up in just about every case I end up writing about involving a black defendant. And it's kind of the topic of a whole other podcast. But but it was relevant in Orlando Hall's case because this same prosecutor, Paul Macaluso, who came out of a DA's office that was known to have a record of of racism and, and injury selection. He became a federal prosecutor and went from the Dallas DA's office to to become a you know an assistant U.S. attorney and and be involved in this case out of Arlington, Texas. And so it wouldn't really come out until uh, post conviction or, or, or I can't remember what stage exactly in post conviction. But but essentially it was it, it was revealed that this this was part and parcel of this case. This is how we get a white jury an all white jury in in the Orlando Hall case. But what's interesting about this story is that, you know, I came to realize that this isn't just a story where like the battle prosecutor is, is, you know, striking all the black jurors and trying to railroad people in that way. Um, There's a lot of fault on the side of, of the defense attorneys in this case. You know, Mr. Hall had to fight it on both ends. And just so we're clear, because I, I know where you're going with this, and I want to be clear to, to our listeners that in a capital punishment case, there, there are two phases. There's the first phase of the trial where the jury determines guilt or innocence. The second phase is the penalty phase of the trial. And in that second trial, I, I like to quote, it's really two trials. And, right. in, and in the second trial, the, the prosecutor gets to produce evidence of aggravating circumstances, right? He can, he can produce evidence that show that th- this crime was, you know, uh, more serious or, or uh, more egregious than you know, than other crimes in that, you know, that could be the defendant's prior record. It could be the the specific facts of the case. But the defense attorney also has an opportunity to to produce evidence and and put on a case to show mitigating circumstances, right? He can show that there are facts that don't justify, you know, look, nothing's going to justify the offense, but it may reduce, evidence may reduce the degree of moral culpability, I guess, for lack of a better term, which would reduce the penalty, right? And that could be things like uh, evidence of mental impairments, the defendant's background, being maybe a victim of, of abuse or, or deprivation. But with that in mind, did, did that come in play at all with Mr. Hall? So, yeah, that's, that's the precise right question uh, in this case. In, in Orlando Hall's case, it was clear from the start from these declarations that came out during post-conviction that his trial attorneys um, not only kind of started way too late to investigate the case, to investigate the co-defendants, there were several co-defendants, there were jailhouse informants, just just the guilt phase alone um, that carried a, a huge amount of investigation that they never quite were able to, uh, it just didn't get to. But at the sentencing stage, yeah, they needed to present as much evidence as they could that the, that their client was a man whose life was worth bearing uh, for, for the reasons that you've just outlined. In his case, as with so many of these cases, there was a background of domestic violence, 
extreme violence on the part of his father, um, who abused alcohol and who was very physically abusive towards Orlando Hall's mother, would beat her mercilessly in front of the children, uh, would also beat the children. So there's a lot of trauma right there. Uh, There was also a significant amount of of neglect. Uh, You know, the kids and Orlando specifically, uh, there were times when he went hungry. There were times when, you know, the electricity was cut off. Um, All of those kinds of circumstances that that often um, are sort of part of the, the narrative of, of some of the so many of these guys who go on to to commit acts of violence um, and end up on death row and and those factors you know they were important they were relevant but Orlando's trial attorneys just didn't in this case I think part of the problem is the era is the mid 90s and and mitigation as a sort of the idea of a mitigation expert of mitigation as an area of expertise that requires a lawyer to hire a, a, a qualified individual to undertake that investigation it had I don't want to say it hadn't caught on, but I've definitely seen in cases where, depending on the attorney, they didn't necessarily believe that they needed to uh, hire somebody devoted to mitigation to this kind of thing. And, and that was definitely the case in, in Orlando Hall's case. And, and one of the weirder parts of this case is that when I spoke to his trial attorney, who, you know, continues to practice and is very well respected, um, he really defended his conduct on that front in, in this case. He, he, he remained sort of skeptical at the idea that he necessarily needed to have a mitigation expert um, doing that work in that in that trial and and that's a little unusual um, in in my experience but but what it amounted to essentially was a very partial picture when it came to the sentencing stage and 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 one of the sort of sad parts of that case is is, is seeing the description of Orlando Hall's mother and of his sister who were told at the very last minute on the same day that they took the stand that they were going to have to be testifying and essentially asking the jury to to spare their loved one's life and they described being really unprepared and ill-equipped to to do essentially what what's being asked of them is to say hey get up on the stand and uh, and describe your worst traumas your worst your your most you know painful family histories uh, so that the jury might might take pity on your loved one and spare their life and, and that's just not something that somebody can do without preparation and that kind of the painstaking work of, of interviewing family members of eliciting that, that kind of testimony testimony um, is really hard. And, and, you know, these declarations from Orlando's family make very clear that there hadn't been enough time invested to, to kind of develop the amount of trust necessary for family members to even go there, to even say, yeah, you know, there was abuse and neglect and trauma and um, alcoholism and violence in our family. Um, that's, that's, that's really difficult work. It just wasn't done in this case. Sure. And it's not to say, you know, a jury wouldn't have found that anyway. You know, they wouldn't. Exactly. Yeah. I, I mean, but it, but again, that's not the point. The point is that he wasn't given a chance. One of the things that struck me about the article was we're now talking about executions during a pandemic and what roles COVID playing with the execution of Mr. Hall and these scheduled executions. That's been maybe the weirdest thing looking back when I first was preparing to go to Terre Haute. I wasn't convinced that these executions would move forward. There were a lot of legal challenges, understandably, based on on the pandemic, including from individuals who are supposed to act as spiritual advisors and be witnessing, you know, be inside the execution chamber with with the condemned. Um, there was a legal challenge brought by by um, the victim's family in the in the Daniel Lewis Lee case, who who actually opposed the execution, uh, but more than that, opposed they wanted to be there in Terre Haute to to, to bear witness uh, to this execution, but were afraid. For their safety and their health, and and protested and essentially said like this is you know you're violating our rights here, and and none of those challenges uh, succeeded. Um, so so when it came down to it, um, 
I believe it was on the eve of the first execution, news broke that one of the um, Bureau of Prison employees who had been involved in preparing for the executions tested positive for COVID. Uh, and I remember thinking I was in Terre Haute, and at the time I was like, this can't possibly move forward. The local paper had written an, uh, an editorial saying, you know, these executions, no matter how you feel about the death penalty, we can all agree that it's you know, ludicrous to carry them out during the pandemic, et cetera, et cetera. And just nothing stopped it. And so those first three happened all in the same week. I, you know, showed up at the media center. It's a very strange setup there if you are press, but you are not witnessing press. To date, I have not been accepted as a, as a witness. I'm trying to figure out why that is um, and how those decisions are made. But essentially what happens is you show up at this designated, this what's known as the uh, FCC Terre Haute Training Center. They take your temperature. Temperature, you sign in, they give you a, a, a briefing, and, and witnessing press are sort of off in one room, and, and the rest of us are off in another. But, you know, given how historic these executions were, the, the resumption of the federal executions after 17 years, there really weren't a whole lot of reporters there on the scene, even even the first few executions. Um, I think a lot of it is, is due to the pandemic, due to the risk of travel. Also, what I've come to realize is that the same set of media witnesses have been tasked with witnessing all of the executions that are sort of lumped together. And so in that first week, it was a lot of the same reporters who had to witness uh, basically three executions in a row, which on its own, even in normal times, um, is a lot to ask of a journalist. But during a pandemic, you know, it comes with a certain amount of assumed risk. And I can share now, I mean, earlier today, I was just on the phone with the spiritual advisor for Orlando Hall, who in the days after he was there in the execution chamber with Orlando Hall. He tested positive for COVID. He fortunately has a mild case, but he is absolutely certain that that he got COVID in the course of that day, waiting for the execution, standing there in the execution chamber with Orlando Hall. The two executioners, as he described it, were not wearing masks. So COVID has really sort of inevitably become part of this story. It just hasn't stops the federal government for a moment from from pushing these things through. And actually, the last thing I should definitely mention is that um, when it comes to Lisa Montgomery, who's the only woman under a federal death sentence, she's scheduled to be executed in January. Her date was originally supposed to take place in December, but her two lawyers, who happen to be Nashville-based lawyers, who I know both tested positive for COVID after traveling to go see her in prison um, in Texas where she's incarcerated. And so they had to, they had to fight to, to get their client's execution date pushed back so that they would be able to fulfill their obligation to her and, and pursue a clemency petition. So, so COVID has really prevented uh, defense attorneys, I think, from, from, from doing their jobs in a really kind of a devastating way for, for those attorneys who, who would absolutely, under nor normal circumstances, not only be going to see their client in person in the, in the run-up to an execution date, but also who would want to be there, you know, as a witness. I think only two of the eight men executed so far have had lawyers in attendance at those executions. And, and the wow. big reason for that is COVID. Yeah. Oh my yeah. Gosh. And then you just think about the fact that all of this is happening under a lame duck president. So I think Hall was the first execution, first lame duck federal execution in over a century. That's right. Unbelievable. Yeah. You know, the headlines over the last week or so are the federal government trying to implement additional methods to carry out these executions. Yeah. And, and <laughs> so that news, understandably, was met with 
just so much revulsion on the part of, of, of Americans who, who may not even be aware of the full extent to which, you know, these federal executions have been pushed forward. And, and of course, that's for, for very good reasons. I mean, 2020 and we're talking about the firing squad, you know, we're talking about electrocution and, and why is this happening now? And, and, and to be honest, well, first of all, I think, I think it's very unlikely, you know, I, 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 I we can say confidently that this isn't that these uh, remaining execution dates in January are not going to, it's, they're not going to take place, you know, via firing squad or the electric chair. Um, I think what's happening here is, is a version of what we've seen um, in states uh, in different states throughout the country, including in Tennessee, where because of ongoing litigation around lethal injection and because of an ongoing kind of problem of, of um, unavailability, shortage of, of execution drugs, states have sort of just made alternate plans and come up with backup methods for executing people. And, and that's how in Tennessee, we ended up in a situation where so many guys have ended up dying in the electric chair. Essentially, well, they've been given, a, a lot of them have the choice between lethal injection and electrocution. And because of the very well-founded fears that, that lethal injection isn't the humane kind of punishment that, it, uh, that you know, we are told that it is, um, a, lot of, a lot of people have, um, here in Tennessee have, have opted instead for the electric chair, which kills people more quickly. It's gruesome, but, but it, it, it works. It seems to be more effective. And so we're in this really perverse situation where, where that's kind of what we're talking about. So I think that one of the unanswered questions I have about this moment is how much of this, how much of this is Trump and how much of this is Barr? Uh, you know, who's kind of behind this, this thing? Uh, because earlier, uh, earlier this year and when this, this whole thing came up, you know, a lot of us were thinking, okay, it's an election year. Trump is on record as being very pro-death penalty. We know this. Um, this is part of his whole law and order rhetoric, et cetera. Um, and yet, as these executions have been carried out, and especially um, in August, late August, the, during the RNC convention, the RNC coincided with with two executions that were carried out. And I was just waiting for, for the moment where Trump was kind of going to get up there beat his chest and boast about uh, these executions that are being carried out on his watch. And he hasn't said almost anything. And so I've been a little bit puzzled by that. It didn't come up during his um, debates with Joe Biden. You know, it's, it's, it's a little bit odd. Um, and so it's made me think that, that this is more Bill Barr's, Bill Barr's project. And so when it comes to the, 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 these new methods, these alternate methods, I definitely think I, I see sort of Bill Barr <laughs> and his priorities all over that. Uh, I don't know how much practical difference it's going to make. Um, and especially as we see Joe Biden be inaugurated, um, we're going to ha be having a, a very different conversation. Um, it was very strange to come home from uh, Terre Haute after Orlando Hall's execution. It was a Friday. I was exhausted. I was sort of <laughs> ready to be done with this for a, for a minute. And I got a text message telling me that there were three more dates about to be set, that three more guys had been moved to the, to the death watch range. So that same Friday, we, we heard about three more dates. Um, and then sort of soon after that, this news about alternate methods, it becomes a little bit mind numbing. Um, <laughs> sort yeah. of, really, it's, yeah. it's, it's surreal. It's, it, you know, and I think you're 100% correct on, on your analysis that it is bar, you know, the president, I don't think cares about anything else. I think he's been a little worried about his own, his own situation with, with respect to potential exposure to, to some different things. But, but the, the tone of the, of the administration has been, for the, the the four years has basically been cruelty is the point. So it, that's from top to bottom. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. today, and, and this is great timing. I mean, um, to have you on today, uh, hours ago, I guess it was this group of 100 current and former 
elected prosecutors, attorneys general, and law enforcement leaders, and former U.S. attorneys and Department of Justice officials, put out a statement. And I think it's a historic statement. I don't know what they call themselves, to be honest with you, but it's fairandjustprosecution.org. This is a joint statement by criminal justice and law enforcement leaders in opposition to application of the federal death penalty. But the most important part of it reads, case after case has revealed that our nation's long experiment with the death penalty has failed. The process is broken, implicates systemic racism and constitutional concerns, and distinguishes our country from many other democratic nations in the world. If ever there was a time to revisit this practice, that time is now. And it goes on, and and I'm going to put the link in the podcast notes. And I really urge everybody to to read this and, and take a look at it because it does touch on all of the elements of that the death penalty is not a deterrent, that the role that race plays in it. And it just, it, it really is a, a very thoughtful piece by former and present prosecutors. What I really love about the way you write, and this whole article is a, a great example, you give it a human dimension without excusing the crime. What was he sentenced in the, I think he was part of the 94 Mm -hmm. crime bill. So he's now an older man and you get the sense from your writing that he's a grown man. He's now a change man. He's a thoughtful man. He's not the man who committed these crimes. And again, you do it in a way where you're not excusing the crime and you do keep the focus on the barbaric and really totally outdated punishment that is about to be inflicted upon him. Well, it's very heartening to hear you say that because I, <laughs> one thing I've gotten used to is just the kind of, you know, hate mail that, that follows uh, one of these uh, articles that, you know, I get positive feedback, but a lot of it, people really kind of lose their minds when you write about people like Orlando Hall as human beings <laughs> instead of monsters. And, and, and I get a lot of emails that just kind of, uh, from people who feel compelled to remind me just what he did and all the grisly details and they do it on Twitter as well. And, and it's always kind of funny to me because like writing about these, these cases, I mean, I know, I know what was done. I've read, you know, what I can, I mean, but, but, but I'd really try to, I think it's hard sometimes to, to know exactly how to walk this line, but I, I try to impress upon the reader, the horror of these crimes without necessarily repeating every last horrific detail uh, about the circumstances of a person's death. Because what I've come to understand also from, from speaking to family members on the victim side is that kind of storytelling can be very re-traumatizing. Um, one of my first interviews I had in Terre Haute, that was actually not related to the federal executions themselves, but was uh, an older case out of, out of Vigo County in, in Indiana. The sister of a young woman who'd been kidnapped and killed, just a horrible, horrible crime. And I met with her essentially to ask how she felt about these executions just in general. And, and she really surprised me. Um, she spoke very powerfully about how the person who killed her sister was executed and that execution did nothing for her. It didn't bring closure. It didn't bring the healing that she needed. But also she mentioned how every time this man's case came up, uh, she had to read in the newspaper the horrible circumstances of her sister's death. 
and how destructive that can be. Um, and, and so I try to remember that and, 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 and not gloss over the ugliness of these crimes, but also not, not make that the center of the story because, because I'm not really sure that that needs to be repeated over and over and over again instead of, of, of some of the context and other humanizing details that come with these stories. So I appreciate you highlighting that. <laughs> Yeah, for sure. And um, I, I really wish we had more time. I, I so much, there's <laughs> so many other aspects to this that I, I really want to want to talk to you about. But I maybe you come on another time and we can we can get into those other things. But thank you so much for being so generous with your time. Keep up the great work because you're, you know, you're a traditional journalist clearly, but you're also and I don't know what. What term to use? Maybe an advocacy journalist. I mean, there are two different types of journalism, and you're you're sort of a combination of both. I think. <laughs> yeah. Well, I don't. I don't pretend to be, you know, quote unquote objective. I, I do write with a point of view, but I think you can do that if you're honest about if you're honest about where you're coming from, and you're honest as a journalist, and don't omit inconvenient facts, then a reader can trust you. So I do try to do that. This is going to continue into January. We're not done. And, and then after that, the question is going to be, you know, is Biden says he's against the death penalty. And he had a pretty central role in, in, in making the crime bill happen and expanding federal death row. So what's that going to mean uh, when it comes to, you know, for his presidency? Is he going to consider commuting sentences? Um, what does that opposition to the death penalty look like? Um, I, I'm certainly going to be interested in, in covering that. Great. And the other thing I want to talk to you about when you come back on is the whole issue of uh, life without parole. And we could, yeah. we could do that as well, you know? <laughs> great, great. Awesome, awesome. Oh, this is great. Thank you so much. What are you working on now? I have a story going up on Saturday about the next guy set to be executed, a guy named Brandon Bernard. And that's oof, in a very different way from Orlando Hall. Um, really sad case. He was very young, 18 years old, very minor role. It, he was Christopher Vialva's co-defendant. He did not himself kill the the couple in this in this crime and um so it, it's in terms of culpability uh his is really very low um so that piece will go up on saturday and then i'm headed to Terre Haute next week great what ended up happening with uh, lisa montgomery's date did it get pushed it did it did she's scheduled to be executed um the the week before biden's inauguration she's one of the three that week if i remember and i don't know much about her but i do remember that she had some mental incapacity she had some some issues. What are they briefly? Yeah. And, and I haven't written about her case yet, although there are a lot of good articles out there. It, it strikes me that she, she does suffer from severe mental illness and I mean, just extreme trauma. I mean, her, her, her life story reads, I mean, it's a very harrowing backstory there, but mental illness is absolutely a part of it. All right. Liliana, thank you again. You plan on coming to New York soon or? Oh, as soon as I can. The minute, the minute it is safe, I miss it so much. I will absolutely be there when I can. What is that thing about New York you miss the most pre-COVID? What's, what's the thing you miss the most? <laughs> it would be wrong to say food, but it is the thing that I do. You know, I go there and I have my like, you know, I Chinese food and my sushi and whatever. It's, it's just the city. I don't know. It's the place where I feel most like myself. You know, yeah. it's just being in the city. There's no place like it. And I have to say my family, my twin sister lives there. So yeah, I just, I feel very much a New Yorker still uh, here in, here in Nashville. So I'm going to get there when I can. All right, Liliana, be safe, be well, and we'll talk to you soon. Thank you. You okay. too. On behalf of David, once again, thank you for listening to this episode. Please take a moment to subscribe and give us a rating at Apple Podcasts. We'll see you next time on The Trial Brief.